I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. Welcome to our study on the fourfold gospel. There's a link in the show notes to the lesson book that we're working through together. Basically, this study looks at all four gospel accounts together, and there are some questions we work through to guide us in our study. Thanks for joining us. So we are in our lesson books on page 8. And we've been reading in in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is what the questions have been focused on. So let's start with a word of prayer. Dear God in heaven, we're thankful for being here this morning that we can study from your word together and reason together from your word. Help us to gain what you would have us to gain from this. We pray that you be with all those on our, on our prayer list. Help us in all we do to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Okay, so we're, like I said, on page 8 in our lesson book. Uh, Christ's life prior to his ministry is sort of the top heading there. And then this section of questions was focusing on uh, Luke's preface, although there weren't really any questions on Luke's preface, but we discussed that last time about his purpose in writing from that preface. Um, And then John's introduction was kind of what the questions were focused on. So we talked about how in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, um, from John John 1 here. And, the, and he had his, a part in creation, we talked about that, and we looked at Colossians and Hebrews that also referred to, to Jesus' role in creation, and that uh, all things were made through him, and the world was made through him. And then we started talking about John the Baptist being referenced in chapter 1, verse 7. And and there in uh, the fourth question, referring to uh, chapter 1, verse 9, where it said, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Referring to Jesus there. Um, He was in the world, and the world did not know him. Talked about, about that. He was rejected by man. And we're, I mark that we're ready for question five. So that question asks us here, what did Jesus give to those who, quote, received him? And, and what does that mean? And what verse are we, are we talking about? I think we're talking about verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. So does that answer the question? <laughs> right? Yeah, the right to be children of God. Yeah. The right to become children of God. Or what would we say? Or what does that mean, I guess? Put that in your own words. Salvation. Salvation, right? So we're, we're part of God's family. Uh, we might use the word Christians, right? I mean, that's a way to describe that. We're able to become Christians. It's a blessing. It's, it's a, 
it's a free gift, but we have to take hold of that and, and we become honored to have that. So what do we mean received him, those that received him? Would be another way to describe receiving Jesus baptism, or what John might John's gospel might use the word believe, you know, and of course that's all wrapped up in all of those things that that our our belief and obedience would entail, such as baptism and repentance and all these things. So I do have that word there, um, elabon, which relates to uh, receiving or accepting an object, receiving a gift. Uh, which is kind of what I was talking about, not quite thinking about the original word. But if we receive him as a gift, then we are able to have these, these privileges that go with being adopted. We don't use the word adopted here, but other places, of course, we're adopted as children because Jesus is the only begotten son or, or the one and only son or different ways that that's translated. Right, that's one of the contrasts with the old law, right, is that you're kind of born into that and you're faithful or you're not, but you're still technically a Jew and, and you maybe feel that uh, inherited thing, but you might not actually be uh, following God, whereas to be part of this family, you're making a choice to become part of this family and to be faithful, and so we're, we're vested in that. We're invested in, in following God to make that choice and continue with that. Okay. The next question asks us, what comparisons did John the Baptist make between himself and Jesus? Jesus existed before John. But wait a minute. Wasn't Zechariah and all that? You know, of course, we haven't gotten into that just yet in our way we're studying this. But, but wasn't John born first? What are you talking about? Well, it says here in verse 15, John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me, which is precisely what you said. But, but we also know that, that John the Baptist was born first, but Jesus, as I think it's John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am, he's, you know, he's eternal God, so he was before John the Baptist from that perspective. Right. That's why I'm trying to take that head on. Like, well, birth order, hang on. Is this, <laughs> this doesn't make sense from the surface, but it, it does if we take the perspective understanding. And that's one of John's, John's main points is, is to see the, uh, that, God, that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the eternal God from the Old Testament. He's one with the Father. The Father is in him, and he is in the Father, and all of those things that Jesus says in John. He said he should be baptized by Jesus, so why would he baptize Jesus? The sinless person, right? But we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> but, but that, of course, that's how this is structured. John is sort of speaking in these broad generalities, referring, uh, you know, the Gospel of John. John is saying these things about John the Baptist. Lots of Johns here, right? Keep our Johns straight. Number seven, uh, in contrast to the law given through Moses, what is said to have come through Jesus Christ? And give a brief summary of how this is true. But what's, what, what do we have here? We're referring, I think, to, to these two verses, verses 16 and 17. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace, verse 17, for the law, the law, like the law of Moses, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized 
through Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? How would you summarize what that, what does it say? Give, give a summary of how this is true. He didn't, uh, didn't destroy it. He fulfilled it. Right, so these aren't at odds, right? We're not like Moses is some rebel and Jesus came to correct him or something like this, right? Uh, but there's a difference. At, I've always looked at it that the old law didn't have a lot of grace either. In other words, there wasn't a lot of grace with that law. You did it exactly to the letter or else you ended the whole thing. You know, we're with Christ. We, we do have grace. There's mercy and mm -hmm. grace with, through Christ. We have that forgiveness of sins. We can all ask for forgiveness where uh, you know, under the old law it was more rigid and strict yeah. know, in that sense. So I think that's how I when I think of grace through Christ that's what I would go to especially this verse here. Mm -hmm. My thoughts went to we, we talk about how the wages of sin is death and then think about that in the context of the Old Testament where well there are all these different sacrifices you have to do and, right. and, and you have to do more later for more sins and and it's just this ongoing thing. Whereas with Christ, he died once for all. And, and we have that one perfect sacrifice that uh, takes away sins, period. And he doesn't have to do it again. There aren't more sacrifices like that that continue. Jesus' one sacrifice was sufficient. And we have grace in that. We have forgiveness of our sins through that. And it's sufficient and complete. So now we get into another section. Uh, genealogies are probably our favorite things to, to read through, right? So Matthew chapter 1, and I don't think we need to necessarily read through this. Hopefully we prepared our lesson. But there might be some points we want to draw from. So, of course, Matthew's account of the gospel uh, starts right with a genealogy. And we kind of talked about, about why that might be and some of the questions asked about this. I think questions 8 and 10 kind of go together. It's kind of... Interesting how these are structured, but if you've done the analysis, how many generations were there from Abraham and Christ? I had, uh, well, from Matthew, so Matthew's um, version, I had, uh, I had 42. Um, and I think some refer to it 41, whether, whether or not you count Jesus, I guess, I don't know. But 42, it's the... 14 times 3, Matthew 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, or for Jesus, who we're talking about, 14 generations. So three 14s, or 7 times 6 is 42, or however you want to look at that, uh, 42. And then, but if you, so that one's, I think, the answer that, <laughs> that the author's looking for, because that's from the text. But if you try to do it from Luke's genealogy, you, you kind of can, but it's, I got 56, I think, if you go that way. And of course, we've talked about how the gospel accounts are, are different. They're, they're focusing on different things. They're taking different perspectives. I think in, in Matthew's account, he dropped some bad kings. And of course, there's some of these wicked kings. And so, you know, Matthew's making a point of the, of the uh, legitimacy of Jesus as the son of David and, and the rightful heir to the throne and all those sorts of things from a Jewish perspective. 
And so seemingly dropping out some of the unrighteous kings to sort of emphasize. And I think the point of the sevens, I guess we're kind of getting a question 10. You know, question 10 asks, how do you explain the obvious differences between the genealogies of Jesus as recorded between Matthew and Luke? Um, but I think Matthew's emphasis was this kingship. And, you know, the Jews really looked at these numbers, the sevens, as we've talked in Revelation, the emphasis on some of these numbers to make a point, the perfection, and that sort of thing. So there's these groups of seven that make up 42, and that's, that's his point in architecting it that way. Um, whereas Luke, I mean, why would Luke give a bunch more people in there? Like, I got came up with 56 for that same question in question 8 about the generations between Abraham and Christ. Why would Luke do it differently? They're, they're tracing the different uh, genealogy. I, th I think it's Matthew through Joseph because Matthew's making the whole point about the king and you'd look at the fathers and all that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's part of it. And then, you know, Luke is coming at more a historian, maybe, maybe more the way we would tend to think, well, Matthew, why'd you leave people out? Well, he's doing this number thing, right? Well, that's weird to us as, as modern thinkers, but Luke has more of that modern perspective was like, well, we're going to get an orderly account and get all these things. And so he's going to try to have a more complete from a data perspective of having all that information, whereas, whereas Matthew is coming at it from a different perspective. And so Luke is taking that human perspective of, well, Joseph isn't even really part of this, except he's the father figure, or so to speak, but, but Mary's the one involved. And so he takes, I think Luke takes Mary's role back. Uh, and, and Luke looks at it from Jesus, starting with Jesus, back to Adam as the son of God. Because Adam is the son of God because God breathed into him the breath of life and all of that. Uh, but of course, of course, Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, but Jesus also likes to talk about himself as the Son of Man, and man and Adam are the same word, so it all kind of wraps up together there. But then, but then Matthew takes sort of that opposite perspective. Instead of Jesus back to Adam, he starts with Abraham and goes forward to Jesus. So, different starting and ending point. It all, all leads to Jesus, but a different order, so... Just a different, a different way that they looked at it from a Jewish perspective and a, and a Gentile Greek perspective. Right, so they both have David in, their, in their lineage. So, and I think that was, I think that was Matthew's point, is that well, you'd look at the father of the household, and if he wasn't a legitimate heir back to David, then all this would be called into question. And in fact, it's not called into question because either way you look at that, it, it leads back to David. Okay, so I, I skipped question nine because I felt like it was a little disjointed. But according question nine, according to Luke, of whom is Jesus supposed to be the son? And we've sort of touched on that, right? It says in, in Luke 3.23, when his ministry, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and it goes on to the list. And we've, and we've talked about why, why would that be? Because, because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit in Mary with no involvement of Joseph whatsoever, right? That was the whole point, the miraculous birth, that, that 
to. But, but from an outside perspective, seeing this family, people would think, oh, well, Joseph and Mary, mom and dad, and there's this child. And they would suppose that that, that would be Joseph's son. Okay. All right, there at the bottom of our page, we have a kind of a big word, annunciation. We don't usually use that word, but it really just means announcement. But, but when the word annunciation is used, it's, it's usually used in this theological connection of the announcement of the birth, of these miraculous births. So the Annunciation to Zacharias of the birth of John the Baptist from Luke 1, 5 through 25. And hopefully we've read that. Um, who, who were Zacharias and Elizabeth? Who were these people? And describe their character. And I think we see that in Luke 1, verse 5. So I have a question. Actually, I... While we were driving here, I was asking Rachel. <laughs> so we just talked about the genealogy, both of, of Mary and of Joseph, and that they go back to David. And David was of the tribe of, here's the pop quiz, Judah. And that's an important point. But here we see Zacharias of the division of Abijah. He's serving as a priest, so clearly... He's a Levite, not of the tribe of Judah, but of the tribe of Levi. And then even it very explicitly says that his wife was from the daughters of Aaron, which, of course, would would have been from the tribe of Levi as well. So we explicitly have Zacharias and, uh, and his wife Elizabeth from the tribe of Levi, and we have explicitly Joseph and Mary of the tribe of Judah. But then... We also have it being referred to as a relative or, or a cousin. I'm not sure what to make of that. I, I, I mean, you know, Paul would sometimes refer to when he would address Jewish people as his brothers, countrymen, and things like this. So I don't know. Uh, I'm throwing that out there. I don't know the answer. Anyone know about that? <laughs> Rachel didn't know either. So anyway, I... I, I it, Obviously, they all go back to Abraham, Jacob, or wherever you want to go back. But I don't, they couldn't have really been close relatives because they, they were to marry within the tribes. So I'll, I'll continue to puzzle over that. It's interesting, uh, and I don't know how this will even enter into what you ask. Uh, <clears throat> the priest was supposed to come from the tribe of Levi. Right. Uh, Zacharias uh, was a priest. Not all pre, not all uh, Levites were priests. Right. But all priests were Levites. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's interesting as, as we consider all of this. That, uh, yeah. uh, because you come from the tribe of Levi, that's a guarantee that you're going to be a priest of God. Now, that's a little different under Christ. <laughs> because he's of the order of Melchizedek, right? Christ is different because he's, he's from Judah. We just established that, right? He's he's with Joseph and Mary, and if you trace his lineage, it goes back to David. I don't know, know why I brought that out because uh, uh, it just confuses the issue. <laughs> well, thank you. We're we're all confused together. But anyway, I mean, whatever. And, and that's we'll talk more about that word, uh, or, um, cousin or relative, but. Uh, okay, anything, so they were advanced in years is the other thing I think to draw from here. Who were, who were Zechariah and Elizabeth? Describe their character. Uh, 
they're both righteous and walking blamelessly, it says in verse 6. And verse 7 talks about they're advanced in years and Elizabeth was barren. So, okay. Question 12. What was Zacharias doing at the time the angel appeared to him and revealed that Elizabeth would bear a son? I think we're at verses 8 through 10. Okay. He's doing his priestly duties. Burning incense in the temple here. Or performing his priestly service before God, because uh, he had that, he was of the order of Abijah, I believe it said earlier. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, number 13. What did the angel tell Zacharias in reference to the son that was to be born to him and his wife? I think we jump to verse 13 here. He also told him in verse 13 to not be afraid. Um, he'll have a son and that his name will be John. So, you know, taking that discretion away from Zacharias as a father there. Um, there was joy and gladness. Verse 15, you will be great before the Lord. You will have no wine. Sort of that Nazarite vow type of a thing there. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, turn people to God. And uh, verse 17, making a reference to Elijah, it is, it, is he, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, quote, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Just to clarify, Luke chapter 1, verse 13 is precisely where that calls out. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give his name John. So, like others we see in the Old Testament who were praying, barren women unable to have children and were praying and then, and then blessed, we see that as well here. And, you know, I think different ones of us as parents perhaps have prayed for children or pray for our children and and certainly these are miraculous situations, right, where uh, this is answered and there's an angel and all of this. But even, even in our lives, you know, I believe God appoints for all of these things, you know, for the children that we're blessed with, that we have a stewardship in each of those cases. And we don't maybe have a, an angel telling us precisely what the mission of our child is, but we, we do have the Holy Spirit telling us in the, the scriptures that we should train up a child in the way they should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it, and all of these things that we, that we do have instruction on how to do that. Last question in this little section here, verse, uh, question 14. When, when Zacharias asked for proof from the angel to verify his message, what sign did he give him? Verse 20. Muted, or unable to speak, and silent. Because um, he didn't... He didn't believe initially there, asking these questions. But why were you praying for it if you couldn't believe God could do it, right? Maybe it would be a question, uh, you know, were your prayers in faith? And are, are our prayers always in faith? You know, we could turn that back on ourselves. And uh, was he over 100? 
I'm not sure if it really says. Uh, I know way back, certainly before the flood, there were very long ages, and that they seem to taper off if you look at the, the numbers. But uh, So I don't know if this, maybe they were 80 thing. or something. And, uh, I mean, if I, if I make it to 90 and 100, well, I'll really be old. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, why wouldn't you question? So, is this punishment? <laughs> well, why was he praying for it? It's not punishment. You're praying. Is, is it punishment for unbelief, or is it, uh... Oh, wow, as far as, yeah. It seems to be. Well, he says, uh, because you did not believe my words... Right there in verse 20. Yeah. That, that's why. Well, and, I, and, and more to the context, Mary, how will I know this yeah. since I'm a virgin? You know, she kind of questions it too, but she's not, she's not reacted to this way. You know, and also might say, well, Zacharias, you've been praying for this for decades probably, and you're an old man who should have wisdom, whereas Mary, a young woman, she's not probably praying. Why would a young virgin be praying to become pregnant before she's married? That would be a stigma. You know, she wouldn't want that. And so maybe that was why she was handled a little bit differently because it's a very different situation. Okay, well, that's a good place to stop or we'll pick up on the Annunciation of the birth of Jesus next time, Lord willing. Start using Annunciation in a sentence. I love to tell the story Twill be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love.